everybody. Welcome back to the Gray Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s, except sometimes we take books from 2020 that are set in the 1960s like we will be doing today. Uh, today we're going to be reviewing the incredible Marvel Snapshots X-Men number one, written by Jay Edited. We'll talk about that in a little while, uh, and uh, we are thrilled to welcome uh, returning guest Marcus Lanasso, uh my longtime friend Scott Free, who's finally on the show, and a man I have been a fan of for many years, Mr. Sean McKeever. I'm so happy to see all of you here. Uh, let me have you each introduce yourselves. I'll have you uh, let us know your name, your gender pronouns, where we may know you from. Whatever you'd like to share there is fine. And today's intro question, what was something you were unreasonably obsessed with in your childhood? Uh, let's go in the order of Sean, Scott, and then Marcus on. Oops, sorry, I got some noise going on. <laughs> I gotta turn off my, my email client. Uh, it sounds so pleasant when I get email. Um, I'm Sean Kelly McKeever. I, uh, comic book writer. Um, I'm best known probably for a series called Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane at Marvel. And now I spend most of my time uh, working in video games, but I've started dabbling back into comics with uh, some Marvel stuff, including an, a Wolverine romance comic on the Marvel Unlimited app. Um, something I was obsessed with. Oh, um, I go by he, him. Uh, and something I'm obsessed with from my childhood would have to be, so I could go with the the lame answer and say Spider-Man, because um, I've read a lot of Spider-Man comics, but something else I was obsessed with as a child in the 70s was Kiss. Just obsessed oh, nice. with Kiss. I think it was because of the makeup, you know, and they looked so crazy. Uh, my sister actually gave me, she got for Christmas uh, one of the Kiss albums and she really didn't like it. And so she gave it to me. And so like I had like the sense of ownership to it and so i started you know started getting their albums and even for my, my like sixth birthday i dressed up as the drummer peter chris and he had a solo album and i did like a lip sync concert for my birthday for the attendees <laughs> yeah and I, I i finally got to see them in concert in like 1980 uh, my mom took me and that was that was fantastic fantastic uh, are you still a fan not so much now I, that, <laughs> I mean i'll i'll listen to some of the old stuff and you know uh and just get a kick out of it but uh not really salt lake city will occasionally get some of those older rock stars who are still doing the same shows now that they're in their like 70s and it's kind of fun to go because they still sound amazing but the crowd is of a certain age <laughs> <laughs> i bet those classics are incredible uh let's go to mr scott free next hi scott Hi, um, Scott, uh, he, him, um, possibly know me from just like social media. Um, I yell a lot about the X-Men <laughs> on, on the internet, um, uh, co-host of the, uh, power of X-Men podcast. Um, I'm also an attorney, so you might know me from suing you. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, oh God, something I was obsessed with as a child. Um, I'm going to sort of do the cop out and say something from the X-Men. Um, I was really obsessed with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, um, which in retrospect was probably a sign that I was going to grow up to be a giant homosexual. So uh, here we are. 
which version of the brotherhood is your favorite oh mystiques i mean you know be gay do crimes that's, that's the whole thing <laughs> where every member of the brotherhood was at least a little gay yeah or the blob <laughs> well blob was gay too blob and eunice man <laughs> yeah, that is true <laughs> uh, and then let's go to my friend marcus on next hi marcus on Hi, uh, thanks for having me back. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. Uh, I'm a co-creator and writer of By the Horns, which is coming out now from Scout Comics. And I'm also a host on the Metalheads podcast, which comes out monthly. And uh, let's see here. The thing I was obsessed about, I'm going to go with my first comic. And the first comic I ever got was actually not quite a comic book. It was this Fisher-Price Superman from Krypton to Metropolis hardcover that was released in 1982. And it had comic book art on every page, um, but it didn't always have word balloons. Sometimes there were word balloons for characters, but most of it was prose. And it told the story of Superman's origin and also detailed his history with Lex Luthor and how they became enemies. But the cool thing about this book was that it also came with a cassette tape featuring a full cast who read the story. And the book had this little plastic sleeve in the back of it um, that attached and you could store the tape in there. And I love the hell out of this thing. I listened to it, read it constantly. And the funny thing about it is that it was actually my brother's book, but I took it from him <laughs> and I never really gave it back. And, um, I took it so much that we actually created this day called Brother's Day uh, when we were little, which was just this awesome holiday that we made up and it would come at random times throughout the year and we would just give each other gifts. And so then he felt better about me having his book. Oh, nice. Do you still have it? I don't have it. I don't know where it is. And I was thinking about where the hell it is, but I did find the recording online on YouTube. Nice. So um, I thought about maybe trying to get it back. Um, my parents might have it still in their basement. You know how that goes, but uh, I haven't looked. And then lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a former Marvel Comics handbook writer uh, and author and uh, currently the host of this show. Uh, uh, I uh, I feel like I could organize my childhood by what I was obsessed with at any given time. Uh, choose your own adventure books at one point. Nancy Drew, He-Man. Man, I was so into He-Man and Ninja Turtles for a while. And then eventually it turned into X-Men, which has been my undying obsession for the last 30 years. Uh, I love uh, most of what Marvel puts out, but the X-Men in particular has always been a big love. So it's been super fun to channel that into somewhat of a professional space in this show, uh, getting to know uh, incredible people and delve into incredible content. Uh, we are going to spend the first part of our show. Oh, real quickly, Marcuson, uh By mm -hmm. the Horns just got nominated for an award, I saw. Uh, do you want to tell us about that? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's another, uh, it's a podcast. And, and um, they uh, do these like Remy Awards every year. I forget what the acronym is for it, actually. But um, we won it, we won it last year. Um, and so we got nominated again, which is really cool because I feel like um, the industry's so into what's the next big thing. So we've got a lot of great accolades for By the Horns, which is amazing. But, you know, the attention shifts to other things uh, as, uh, as the year goes on. So it's nice to, to continually get recognized now that we're in, like, I think the 14th issue just came out of the book, which is, you know, for an indie book, running that long is pretty, pretty cool. 
That's amazing. And you're doing great work. I can't wait to see where it goes next. Uh, we've talked about it on the show a few times. I love this book. It's wonderful. Thank uh, you. So we're going to spend the first part of the show today just getting to know Sean a little bit. Uh, Sean, every time I'm interviewing someone new, I will always review uh, all of their Marvel work and then a little bit of your other stuff when I have the time. But you have a pretty extensive history. Uh, let's start with just kind of the standard question of I would love to hear a little bit about your transition from kind of fan into professional, uh, kind of leading into your Marvel's day, Marvel days. I know you had some uh, really incredible indie work that was uh, pretty acclaimed before you got to Marvel, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey yeah you know um <clears throat> from from the time i was a little kid i was obsessed with you know as i mentioned before spider-man um <clears throat> but also um telling stories and it it wasn't something that i thought about consciously as a thing to do it was just something i did and you know like for third grade i think it was i i wrote a play and starred in it that was like spider-man and daredevil and electro and <laughs> You know, and and we performed it in class uh, with the cast of of, of classmates, and it later uh, became Spider Man the Musical on Broadway. Yeah, yeah, it um, became Turn Off the Dark. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, uh, you know, I was just I was I really loved writing prose. Um, I tried to make my own comics, but I wasn't that good an artist. <clears throat> and um, at some point. In you know, like in high school, I was I was more interested in in screenwriting, and so I like got obsessed with that for a little while. But then towards the end of high school, I thought I you know I'd really like to write a comic for Marvel, and I didn't know how to you know anything about submissions or anything like that. So I I um I had this idea for a story in my head, and I I took um, poster board and drew out the layouts using like a ruler and. I wrote, I actually wrote like all the dialogue and stuff in there. And then I, and then I wrote a separate document that kind of explained what was happening. Uh, Cause I didn't, you know, I didn't know how any of this worked. Um, this is like the late eighties and I sent that into Marvel. Um, and then, you know, a month later it got sent back to me, you know, um, you know, with the poster boards that they can't, you know, accept that, you know, they called it original art, <laughs> which was, you know, kind of kind. <laughs> um, and they sent me their first form rejection letter. And, you know, I'd continue to get those um, over the years. You know, I was so into comics that I, I started selling comic books out of my parents' hardware and sporting goods store in a town of 1,200 people in northern Wisconsin. And so I, uh, you know, so I was like huge into comics. And I'm selling all these comics in the early 90s. And I'm realizing I'm not going to make it at Marvel. And I think, what would I want to write about if not Spider-Man or the X-Men or something? Um, and so I was kind of looking around at stuff like Stray Bullets, Strangers in Paradise, Hate. And I thought, well, I, why don't I write something a little more, you know, semi-autobiographical, something about normal people. Um, and I, you know, I came up with the idea for The Waiting Place, which was a, basically, you know, riffing on, on my having grown up in a, in a small tourist trap town um that i didn't enjoy living in <laughs> and so uh you know i found artists to work with me um this was in the early days of the internet and i had a i had a friend on CompuServe who knew some artists um who lived near him and um we got together and made the first issue and we took it to some publishers and uh 
I, I, I actually went to San Diego Comic-Con in, what was that, 96, I think it was. And I, I took, you know, this this nicely photocopied edition, like an Ashcan edition of the first issue around to the publishers. And they'd all throw it in their big box that they have to lug back home, you know. And it was it was pretty demoralizing. But uh, one of the publishers, uh, Dan Votto from Slave Labor Graphics, left a message on my machine. He said, yeah, I read your first issue and I want to read the second one. So, I you know, I'll publish it. <laughs> so that was that was the start of my uh, writing comics. Well, I guess that's kind of skipping over. I was also starting to get um, some short stories in at Caliber's uh, anthology Negative Burn at the time. Um, so I so I just started kind of breaking in. But um, but that, you know, that book started coming out and it didn't sell very well. Um, I think the first issue was you know, was the best selling of of any of them. And that was like 5,000 copies. But very quickly, it was like 1,000 copies an issue. But one of the people who was buying it and apparently liked it was Tom Brevert at Marvel. Um, and, and you know, I had made friends with Paul Jenkins, uh, the writer, and he was kind of mentoring me at the same time. Paul needed a... Um, Paul needed somebody to fill in for him on The Incredible Hulk because he was behind and... Tom decided to give me a chance. And so I got uh, to write The Incredible Hulk and that was my start at Marvel. That's amazing. I love these stories of taking childhood obsessions and just loving and owning who you are. In the sixth grade, I had a full year of weekly comics called the Teenage Mutant Ninja Toucans. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> that I just shared with my friends. Uh, they all had masks and weapons uh, that were very close to the turtles, but otherwise it was completely original. in the issue we're going to review today we're going to talk about some of cyclops's obsessions uh and why that's important and how they matter and it's going to be it's going to be great uh so once you got your start at marvel and we love tom brevoort here i've I've got to interview him on the show before he's a lovely human uh i i worked on the handbooks for years and had never met him so during my podcast i'm like i just get to meet my former boss now like i'm kind of jealous of you that you got to work on the handbooks that's I, i was obsessed with those things they, it's an intense amount of work. Uh, I'm happy to talk to you about that experience. We, uh, we have one, uh, one episode of the show featuring Elliot Brown, who did the tech designs in the original books. Uh, oh yeah, with Jeff Christensen, who was the editor on the modern handbook. So go, okay. go give it a listen if you want to learn a whole bunch about what that's like. Uh, Gabe Schechter's on too. He was another fellow writer. Uh, so once you started at Marvel, you then started doing a load of work with a lot of really original projects. I feel like this was an era in Marvel at the early 2000s when they were uh, really pushing for a lot of creativity and newness. Uh, you got to do really fun books. Uh, Gravity, which was an original character you created. Uh, one of my favorites that I was a little bit obsessed with and would actually love to do a whole podcast with you about, but we won't, uh, today is your Inhumans book. I uh, I was in early college at the time and I love those characters, which is maybe something you don't hear a lot, uh, but I really, really enjoyed that book. Um, let's take it that far. Tell us about Gravity and the Inhumans. Yeah, I, I, you know, I um, I hear that in my own mind. I really miss those characters. Uh, you know, I really wish that they had taken off. Um, yeah, so, so what happened was, you know, I was doing some fill-in work here and there and some little, little bits and pieces and... Uh, and in 2002, um, you know, uh, Tom, one of Tom's assistants, uh, Mark Sumerak, came to me, and then also Tom came to me, and the, and they said, "Look, we're doing pitch offs for these books." And and yeah, this was a time when Bill Jemis, who was the the 
president at the time at Marvel, um, was really trying to push to get comics to be more accessible to the wider, broader audience and not just comic book fanboys. Um, so they they came to me, you know, with the idea for Sentinel, and they and then they also came to me with Inhumans, and they said you could either do something with the royal family, and this would be following up on the Paul Jenkins J. Lee uh, 12-issue maxi-series that won an Eisner, or you could do something different. And I'm like, I'm going to do something different. <laughs> I am not going to try to follow that act. Um, <laughs> so um, I, th I think they had given me the prompt of, of like, take the, the young characters that Paul and Jay introduced in that story and, and, and then, you know, build on off of them. Um, and so having written, you know, like teen drama and ensemble casts, that's my thing. I decided to go with that route and I created three new characters for the, for the series. And, uh, Sen and, was, and Sen and Joe Lynn and was Alaris your other? Alaris. Yeah. 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 I love, yeah. I love that book, man. <laughs> yeah. Ta uh, what Tanaja Nariz. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. Um, gosh, I can't believe I remember their names. Um, <laughs> But uh, uh, so so I did the pitch off for both of those and 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 they they liked them both. So so suddenly I had two series at Marvel. That's when I started full time uh, freelance writing, and that was exciting. Um, and with Inhumans in particular, it was you know it, it was an opportunity for, for me to do what I did with the Waiting Place, but you know to do it in the Marvel universe. Um, I mean, it, you know, the series is pretty disconnected, and that was a big part of what they wanted um, from both that and Sentinel. It's like, well, you can reference the Marvel Universe, but don't bring it in, you know. Um, I couldn't bring X-Men into the into the Sentinel story, which just pained me, and I couldn't, you know, I tried to have Bullseye be a villain in Inhumans, and um, so I had to come up with my own villain for it, um, you know, a new character. Um, but, it, you know, it's like, oh, I want to play with the toys. But uh, but writing in humans was a whole lot of fun. It was very difficult. Um, in fact, at one point I had quit the series um, just because you know it was it was just too much work um, because of you know balancing all these characters and making sure it all worked and and trying to keep it fresh um, without bringing in the Marvel uh characters you know that was i think that was the real sticking point for me but then i stuck with it and then they canceled it <laughs> <laughs> but uh but that was a real labor of love for me uh to write that um just the just the chance to well one you know i said it in wisconsin because i seem to set everything in wisconsin and uh and so i got to kind of play on some of the stuff that you know um that i was familiar with and and it was a it was a fun way to you know to take these incredible um, characters with fantastical powers and throw them into the normal world, you know, which is a big part of what Marvel's always been about, you know. But I did it in a in a less uh, bombastic manner, and it was it was pretty neat to do that. Were you familiar with the Inhumans uh, before you started writing them, Sean? Oh, for sure, uh, mostly from that that. Uh, maxi series that Paul and Jay did, but um, mm -hmm. but I mean I you know I well heck I had first seen Medusa in an issue of Spidey Super Stories when I was a kid, and then like in an issue of Spectacular Spider-Man. Um, I wasn't a huge Fantastic Four person though, so I didn't read a whole bunch with them in it. But every now and then I'd see something with them, and I feel like in the '80s they were given pretty short shrift. 
Um, because I don't recall there was like a one shot at one point, you know, they, they would mm-hmm. just kind of pop up here and there. Um, yeah. but, well, that but Paul yeah, Jenkins was, was, Jay Lee series really brought him back to prominence for sure. Yeah, yeah, they really did uh something special with it. I but I wasn't um probably the most familiar I'd gotten with them was um if you guys read uh Anna Senny and Ramita Jr.'s Daredevil run, yes, my favorite Morgan and, and Karnak in there. I thought that I thought that was fantastic. The Anderson Daredevil is my favorite Daredevil run. I had it bound in hardcover and oh, nice. hardcover, I, and I had her sign it at a, it was San Diego Comic Con years ago, and she she threatened to steal the books from me. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I have. The I, I had Anderson on my show and asked her all X Men questions related to her Daredevil run. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I I uh, I tell my friends that that's my favorite Daredevil run, and that and one of my friends. He gets so angry at me. He's like, but the Frank Miller run is like, is like, you know, lauded. And it's, you know, it's how could you, how could you think this is better? I'm like, I don't think it's better. I like it more. <laughs> There's a difference, you know, I mean, and I really do like, you know, Born Again and all that stuff. But, but Annie Nasenny brought this great, um, I don't know, this vibrance and, and, you know, uncharacteristic, uh, sort of elements that you didn't get to see in Marvel books. Right. You Cause know, he was on the road and he'd get to meet all these different characters. It was so different that yeah. those Blackheart stories are so good. Oh, I love Blackheart. I love that. Yeah. Uh, Scott, did you have a question? Um, well, you, you kind of hit mine about the, the inhumans. I'm a, a giant black bolt fan and, um, I'm, I'm definitely, a in agreement with you that particularly the 80s was not a very kind um kind time for the inhumans like they really they pop up in the fantastic four and a couple of other um a couple of other things but like you you mentioned that you were interested obviously in spider-man and the x-men and like so prevented you from being able to use that um like was the temptation always sort of there to try to like reference or work in yeah i would still i would still pitch stuff constantly that you know like i, I like i it was hard to even get a mutant in sentinel you know um but yeah i mean i would i would try to make reference because i think that you need that um you know, if you're if you're a, a reader coming in who's never read Marvel comics or doesn't understand any of that, like I think you still need the context that this is a world where there's all these fantastical things going on all the time, you know, and it's okay for it to be grounded, but but yeah, you need to know, you know, you need to understand like what the Sentinels were built for, and you need to understand um that the humans may be special, but they're not so special that people are freaking out because you know it there there are superheroes in the world you know so i so i got to get a little bit in there um but it was frustrating yeah so among the things we will not cover today are more of your books that i love uh we have uh spider-man loves mary jane which you referenced before which is so beloved and uh so well remembered which ran for 24 issues between the two titles uh which is an impressive okay okay yeah yeah that's amazing (laughs) 
and we we love we've covered a lot of Spidey X Men stuff on this podcast. Even recently, uh, we've done a couple of Spidey focused episodes because the X Men appear. Like we love this character too. We love Mary Jane. We love Gwen Stacy. The whole thing. Uh, you also did Young Allies and created a, an incredibly named uh, group called the Bastards of Evil, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that's what sold the book. Was like Tom just really loved that name. It's uh, it's quite shocking. And again, I could have a whole conversation, but to keep it slightly X-Men focused, yeah. I don't know if you are following the current continuity of the X books, but every year or two, they're having a public vote where one member of the team gets to be voted in in kind of a popularity contest. They'll issue out 10 members and then the public, like us, vote. And then the person who gets the most votes gets put on the X-Men team. And the most, well, they've been doing that. Yeah, yeah, it's happened a couple times. Polaris won the first vote, and the character that won the most recent vote is Firestar. And a lot of people have been very upset because she's not super X-Men connected, even though she has been part of the X-Men before. But you did uh, some great work with the character Firestar, uh, including a one-shot with wonderful art by Emma Rios, and she was part of your Young Allies team. Uh, Tell us about the character Firestar and what you enjoy about her. Well, you know, I, I I still remember the first time I ever saw her. It was, you know, an ad um, in one of the comics for the upcoming uh, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, why does it say Firestar? That's clearly Phoenix. You know, that, that, like I wasn't I wasn't that <laughs> up in, on the X-Men at that point, you know, but I but seeing the aura and her standing like that, it was a very, very Phoenixy pose, you know, Um but yeah, so I was, you know, I have um, a lot of nostalgia for that for that cartoon, and that's, you know, and that's where my interest in her started. Um, I was very excited when she joined uh, the, the Marvel Universe in Uncanny One Ninety Three. Um, you know, I enjoyed her miniseries. Um, yeah, and it's just always been a character I've been interested in writing. So you know, whenever I had the chance, I, I did, and that that included, like you said, that one shot. Um, I got to write a Spider-Man and his amazing friends comic book um, that was that's technically their first in continuity team up uh, with Iceman and Firestar and Spidey. Um, that was a lot of fun. Um, it it kind of reads weird now that that Iceman has come out because it was the whole thing was Spider-Man was setting them up on a on, on a date and they were dating. Um, but uh, um, and then, I, yeah, I put her in Spider-Man. I love Mary Jane because I'm like I want another I want a superhero female superhero character for Spidey to romance potentially, um, and and kind of make the you know all the all the romance a little more tangled. Um, and I even when I returned to Marvel, I I had gone uh, exclusive with DC Comics for a couple of years. Um, and when I returned, I pitched them a Firestar miniseries that was set in the Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane universe. That would have each issue would have been like part of her journey, like from you know from her origin to her uh, being in the Hellions to um, being in the New Warriors to being in the Avengers and then finally um, becoming a member of the X Men. You know, it was, and it would have been five issues. Um, and I had Takeshi Miyazawa on board. The colorist yeah. Christina Strain was on board, and they said, "No, we we just want more Spider Man loves Mary Jane." But at the time, I didn't have any ideas for that but but yeah uh going back to firestar i just you know i i don't know what it is about the characters i th- i think it's that she's she i mean she's a pretty moral character you know and she's a kind person um 
and I, you know, I think looking back at all the stuff I've read, I probably enjoy um, when she was part of the Avengers the most. I, I wasn't a huge New Warriors reader. I probably read maybe five issues total of that series. But um, but the way that Kurt Busiek wrote her in Avengers um, was really great. Yeah, yeah, she's a great character. Uh, and then, uh, well, I'll focus. You read the Fire Firestar miniseries uh, from the '80s. There's a moment in there that's infamous where Emma Frost kills her horse Butter Rum. Uh, <laughs> yes. If you remember that, in the recent comics, now that Firestar's in the X Men, Emma has revealed that Butter Rum. She only pretended to kill her. She used her sight, like tele telepathy, to make. <laughs> Angelica believed Butterum was dead, but she's <laughs> off at a stable somewhere, very happy. <laughs> I I love that. That is fantastic. That's, a, that is wonderful. It's a great callback. Uh, and then we got to focus on your most X-Men adjacent work, uh, which is X-Men Jean Grey. Uh, your X-Men Origins Jean Grey, which we recently reviewed on the podcast. Uh, oh, gosh. Gorgeous art by Mike Behu. You can go back and listen to the episode. We just put no. it go. We love it. <laughs> we love it. We have a whole conversation about how telepathy works and how beautifully you portrayed the different visuals with Jean's powers and tied in her origins. We were big fans. Uh, tell us about how this book came to be. I, you know, first, I just got to say, I owe such a big debt of gratitude to Mike Mayhew. He just really knocked it out of the park. God, it's that. pretty. Yeah. He, he. I mean, it, it came out two years after I wrote it. <laughs> he took a, He took his time with it, and that's fine by me, you know, because um, what, what wound up coming out, I thought, was really terrific. Um, yeah, Mike Martz just came to me and he said, we're doing these series of origin books. And, you know, and what do you think about Jean Grey? And and I said, well, I, you know, I think I don't really know her that well. And I'd have to look into it, you know. And and so that's when I started kind of, you know, looking into her origin and stuff and, and then realizing that some of it was in um, an issue of an old Marvel magazine called uh, Bizarre Adventures a black and white magazine. So I had to hunt that thing down. Um, and this was before, you know, you could find everything on the internet scanned. Um, this is like 2004, 2005. And it was, uh, you know, that's what really kind of hooked me into it was, was the tragedy of her origin and, and, and kind of the, you know, um, the fact that, that she had to put up these walls and learn to control what she was. You know, um, that's what that's what brought me into it um, initially. It's really, really beautiful work. We've also reviewed the Bizarre Adventures story on my pod. Uh, so we're taking our time. We're taking it an issue at a time, working our way through the continuity and kind of building the the mythology of these characters over time. But yeah, if you have not read Sean's uh, X-Men Origins Jean Grey book, it's just stunning. We love it. One of the things I love most about it is uh, Jean's just beautiful connection to her family. And how you make the Greys this happy family unit who are so desperate to help their daughter. Uh, you bring Sarah Gray in. You're one of the few writers to ever give Sarah Gray a little bit of love and attention. Uh, so yeah, just beautiful work. Yeah, I thought I thought it was important to to portray the family, you know, as, as three dimensional. I mean, I'm I'm kind of like that with everything I do. But I mean, in this instance, you know, I didn't want it to be like the usual kind of our daughter's a freak you know, how can we get rid of her kind of, yeah. you know, vibe, you know, and it, it's more like our daughter's a freak. How can we get her help? <laughs> 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 they're certainly not, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to be supportive, but they're certainly not uh, gung ho about it at all. 
Uh, we, uh, I do a Patreon channel where we focus on uh, individual characters. Stephanie Nina Pizzarillis and I did a whole episode about the Gray family, and we reference your issue as well. And we talk about this wholesome, loving family who later gets slaughtered by Chris Claremont. <laughs> it's it's a, a very tragic. Are they really? I don't remember. There's a lot that I don't know about X-Men history, though. Yeah, yeah, we 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 covered in that episode. Uh, the the Shi'ar are trying to wipe out all traces of the Phoenix on Earth, and they send these this team called the Death Commandos down, and they literally everyone who is a member of the Gray family gets slaughtered in front of Rachel. It's it's super tragic. It rips your heart out. If it was yeah. anyone but Claremont, I'd be pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then I want to focus on your most controversial work for a moment. I'm going to make this very serious for a second. Uh, the X-Men are representing uh, disenfranchised populations. And there are signs and symbols used for every disenfranchised population in history that are kind of used to uh, target them in some ways. Uh, and the thing that is most enduring in the X-Men comics against the X-Men is the Sentinel. It's almost the swastika against the against the people. They represent something very dark and scary uh, across the mythos from the beginning into the far future where we've got things like Nimrod. Uh, the Sentinels have wiped out millions of mutants uh, on Genosha. Uh, they have been used again and again as uh, something created by the government to hunt mutants down. So there's this image of uh, of this very scary kind of robot creature that's meant to wipe out these people. Uh, and then you wrote this cute little book about a boyfriend <laughs> and a sentinel riding around on I'm like, yeah, he's my best friend. <laughs> and it's, a, it's I love the book, but it's a bizarre repurposing of, uh, of this, this symbol. Uh, so I would love to hear a little bit about your thoughts on uh, Justin Seyfert and Sentinel. Uh, yeah, but for two um... volumes, 17 issues, I think. Yeah, yeah, seventeen issues total. Um, I was I was really pleased to get to go back and write more for that. Um, yeah, you know, um, yeah. I mean, part of the whole thing with with Sentinel and and I kind of do this kind of thing with Gravity as well. Is is it's you know sort of the innocence of youth and the things that you don't know you don't know, and that's you know that's the big thing with Justin and the Sentinel. All he sees is a toy and then he sees a solution to a problem and then he sees kind of a problem you know um and and um you know it's how it's like how do you yeah how do you reconcile you know i mean obviously i didn't get too um weighty into into that end of it um because it's a ages 12 and up book you know um but um but yeah, I, I you know i i probably didn't spend a whole lot of time i, I mean this is hard to remember you know, being 20 years ago, almost now. Yeah. 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 Um, but I don't, I don't recall like thinking a lot about like, this is, you know, I, I was thinking about this as a dangerous thing, but you know, not so much the representation of a, of like, if somebody was go walking around in a, in a Nazi uniform. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's a yeah. great book. It's very kind of like iron giant feel. It's the kid with the big giant robot. It's, it's very a much. wonderful book. It's just, uh, it's just when you, when you stack it up with the X-Men content, you're like, Whoa. Yeah. People <laughs> always ask me if I ripped off iron giant or if I ripped off an issue of what if where cannonballs brother befriends a Sentinel. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, neither. I'm like, maybe, you know, maybe they were inspired by both of those, probably at least by Iron Giant. Um, but I'm like, it's, you know, it's a, it's a genre unto itself. The kid and his special friend, you know, um, E.T. is one of those kind of uh, stories. Mm -hmm. uh, but, 
but yeah, I, I, you know, I had, I had a really good time making that. And, and again, it was another situation where I wanted him to have, you know, a single father who was a compassionate and loving man, as opposed to the usual, you know, broken families where the dad is the asshole, um, which is, which is fine. And it's, you know, and it's, but it's become kind of tropey, right? Um, so I wanted to put that on my head, on its head and have, have more of a caring family. Um, and I think that that helped kind of give it some, uh, some heart and warmth. If you'd been allowed to bring the X-Men into the book, do you remember the story you wanted to tell? You know, I, I didn't have anything specifically with the X-Men in mind because I, I just didn't spend any time thinking about it because they had told me that was off the table from the beginning. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. but but I, I knew I wanted like I was gonna have a speedster teenage mutant at some point. Um you know, there I mean there's plenty that I that I wanted to do with that. In fact, one of the things I wanted to do, tying back to what we were talking about earlier, is that is I wanted to do a, a Wisconsin-based um kind of crossover between inhumans and sentinel and gravity, uh, because you know they're all from there. But uh but that never that never really got to happen. Um but yeah, I, I you know, um I, I wish that that there were that, that I could have done a story where where he more, you know, he gets to confront head on the fact that his that his buddy, his his big toy is not a big toy and that it is designed to kill people and and really put that out, you know, out in front. Um but yeah, I just didn't get to. Do you know what happened to Justin? Yeah. <laughs> Justin, uh, Justin, and the Sentinel were recruited into uh, Avengers Academy, and uh, they were trained there for a period of time. There's a storyline where the X Men get the uh, Phoenix Force. Emma Frost is part of it. Cyclops. They get the Phoenix Force, and they go to Avengers Academy and confront him. Like this is a death machine. It's kind of super not cool that you have this, uh, but they let him keep the Sentinel. Then later, Arcade pulls him into his terrible island where it's a bunch of teenage heroes forced to fight to the death. And Justin is first paralyzed and then killed. Uh, And it's very tragic, uh, a very tragic end to this character. Do you recall uh, how you got that information and how that made you feel? Um, Somebody told me on the Internet, um, like on Twitter or something. And... um... And I, you know, I, I wasn't super sad, but you know, I raised the raised the glass in his honor. Um, and then later, um, you know, a couple of years later, ran into Dennis Hopeless at a at a convention, and he's the one who had written that. I'm like, oh, thanks for killing Justin. And he's like, you're welcome. You know, I mean, we're you know, we're we're kind, of, you know, I mean, we're acquaintances, so it wasn't like contentious or anything. But you know, at the same time, it's like it's made me double think ever killing a character because like, you know, somebody created that and it could have potential yet, but you know, um, it's Marvel comics, you know, characters can always come back mm-hmm. if, if there's demand. And I don't, I don't see there being demand for Justin coming back, but you know, the, yeah, yeah, there's a thousand ways to save him. It was an LMD or a scroll that died instead. <laughs> yeah. On the, on the other, on the other end of the spectrum though, like I was told by, um, um somebody at marvel i can't recall who that grant morrison was inspired by sentinel to create that uh rover um thing at the end of uh at the end of his run um so that was kind of cool yeah 
I mean, they killed a horse. They, they saved it from Firestar's wrath. So if they can bring it back. Yeah, if they can bring back Buttercup. <laughs> yeah. Butter rum? Butter rum, which is such a great thing. <laughs> Sean, is there a, is an X-Men character that you still want to write that you're interested in, in putting down on paper? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, there are probably several um, if I if I had the time to think about it. I mean, I I finally got to you know do a little more with Wolverine, which made me happy. Um, I'd always like to do more with Mystique. I didn't get to get into some of the stuff I wanted to with her um, on my brief 11-issue uh, tenure. Um, I was mostly wrapping up um, the previous writer's work. Um, but, oh, man. Is that tough, it's wrapping kind of... up somebody else's work instead of yeah. doing your own? Yeah, it, it was not great. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but at the same time, I did get to kind of put my stamp on it. Um, right. You know, it was... I had a pretty good time writing that overall. Um, but uh, but I think, i tell you what, um, after after reading the comic we're going to review today, I'm, I would be more interested in writing Cyclops. Um, more meaning less than zero or more than zero, which is the interest I had previously. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, he he's somebody I'd like to write more. I and I can tell you there's others, but but I'm just drawing a blank. I always do that when when I when I get those kind of questions. When yeah, I prepped, yeah. when I prepped for today, I totally forgot you wrote Mystique. I didn't reread your Mystique work. I love that series. It's so good. Uh, I forgot you finished that up. You know, yeah, it was a fun concept. You know, and I I, I had what I had proposed um, before I knew it was canceled was you know they had the Marvel Max line and I. You know, I was proposing taking it to Marvel Max and um, putting it in a place where I could more, um, where I could, you know, explore her identity and her sexuality um, in a little more depth. Um, you know, it wouldn't have to be, you know, hard mature material, but it would be, you know, it would be maybe not, you know, like, you know, obviously some parents are like, oh, I don't want my kids to know any of this exists. You know, or it's or they're too young to for me to explain it to them or whatever. Um, but it would have been an opportunity for me to uh, to explore that side of her, which is what I was kind of interested. In. I I really like her because she's, I mean, she's just so devious, and yet, you know, she has this she has this moral center that's that's very uh, clear. You know that that it's mutants first. Um, really, it's it's her first. But you know, mutant kind is second, um, and and I like that you never, you know, depending on the situation, you don't know which side she's going to take until she does, and it's exciting. The X Men have their own government now and their own country, and Mystique with a resurrected destiny, her wife, are on the on the like leadership council. So we're we're getting a lot of her right now. We love. Oh, that's her. good. That's good. You know, another one I wish I had uh, written more of is Emma Frost. I. Technically, I wrote, um, you may not know this, I wrote an Emma Frost miniseries that never got published. Oh. Uh, back when yeah. they were doing the X-Men Icons uh, uh, miniseries. Like, yeah. uh, I know yeah. Brian Vaughn did a Cyclops one. Um, I had written all four issues. Um, the art was maybe an issue and a half into it. and But the Marvel, the X-Men Icons just weren't selling, so they canceled it. Um, and the plot of it was ridiculous. It was... Like I was inspired by the movie Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Emma Frost and this young mutant that she's taking under her wing, we're gonna have a contest to see who could who could uh 
who could sleep with this this guy first without using their powers. <laughs> wow. Like that's the plot of the whole thing. <laughs> and then and then at one time I was I was um brought on to write a 12 issue um origin story of of Emma Frost that was um based on a document that Grant Morrison had written. Like he had I guess intended to write this but didn't have the time and so they paid for the paid for his work and wanted somebody else to to write it. And it was that that was pretty mature stuff. I I wish I still had that document. It was pretty interesting. Um, at the end of our call today, when we're doing kind of our outs, I'd love to hear you talk about your Wolverine love comic uh, as we're as we're kind of wrapping up today a little bit. But I uh, I'm I'm embarrassed I didn't prepare Mystique questions. But I'm so fascinated by hearing some of your process. It's lovely getting to know you. Um, my favorite of yours is still Inhumans. If I had to choose one, because I loved it so much. But uh, I love all of your work, man. Really, really tremendous. I appreciate it. Um, with that, let's transition into our issue review for today. Part of the fun of this podcast is we get to get to know people and then just hang out and, and nerd out over new comics. Uh, I'm going to do a little bit of setup. We've done a lot of love uh, about all the X-Men on this podcast so far that are in the original team. But Scott Summers, his origin is very, very confusing. And it's kind of parsed out over a series of decades. We first see him in X-Men number one. It's in X-Men 38 that we learn he's an orphan for the first time. In X-Men 56, we meet his brother Alex for the first time. And then kind of over time, Chris Claremont, once he takes over in the 70s and into the 80s, kind of parses out little pieces of their story. But it's not until Uncanny X-Men 156, where we get the full story about how Scott and Alex were on the plane with their parents, uh, Chris and Kate, the Shi'ar, come down and attack, blow up the plane, and they get pushed out in the parachute. Uh, they think their parents are dead. It's, uh, it's in a bunch of issues like X-Factor 39, X-Factor minus one, classic X-Men 42, 43, where we kind of learn more about their background, where Cyclops ends up in an orphanage run by Mr. Sinister based in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And he's got a big lab of cloning technology underneath that's shown up in the comics literally dozens of times over the years. Havoc, meanwhile, was adopted out into the Blanding family. And then they don't see each other for a period of years after that. Uh, we also have references to the two of them losing some of their memories about this trauma. It took them years to get their memories back. And the issue we're going to re read today is based on some of that space where Scott is not remembering his trauma very clearly. I am a therapist in my day job. And that is a thing that happens often when we go through trauma is we do not remember what has happened to us until such a time when our brain can kind of compute it. We might be reminded of something or have enough safety in our life to bring those things to the surface. So the issue we're reviewing today, this was part of a, a series of books called Marvel Snapshots that were coming out about different characters set in kind of the prehistory of Marvel. This came out in November, 2020. It's called Marvel Snapshots X-Men number one. The title of the book is And the Rest Will Follow. And the writer is Jay Edidin, who is well known to the queer X-Men podcast community as the co-host of the Jay and Miles podcast. And uh, Jay's a pretty special person. If you go back and listen to their podcast, uh, Jay, during the course of their podcast, has uh, undergone transition and begins living as a man and is a huge X-Men nerd and slowly over time kind of becomes more of an X-Men professional. Uh, I had the, the honor to meet Jay when I went to FlameCon very briefly. I hope to have him on the show one day, uh, but he's an incredible person. So it's a really cool thing to see someone who uh, is embracing themselves 
and uh, loving their nerdy side and podcasting and then turning that into uh, more professional writing. Uh, the art on this book is by Tom Riley with colors uh, by Chris O'Halloran and inks by Tom Orzakowski, excuse me, letters by Tom Orzakowski with Darren Shan as the editor. Uh, before we even jump in, uh, do you guys want to share any of your thoughts on Cyclops and his bizarre origin story <laughs> before we do this kind of focused episode on him? Well, I enjoyed it. This is a <laughs> was great issue. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, it was. It was. I. I am also not a big fan of Cyclops, and I had uh, a negative interest, I would say, <laughs> so a little less than Sean's uh, in the character. But I. I did enjoy how how it was how it was written, and I really liked the artwork. I think it fit well with the uh, with the story, especially set in that that time period. So yeah, the narration was very good in it. <laughs> Um, I'm a, a massive, uh, Cyclops fan. So, um, <laughs> Hey, a positive. Yeah. Positive. Um, <laughs> so it, it was, it was interesting to, this is the second time I've read this, but I, I hadn't read it again since it come out originally. It's, it's, it's interesting to see the sort of the gap filling. Um, it's like Chad said, Cyclops's history is teased out over a long time and they also just continue to add to it. Like early 2000s we get deadly genesis where they retcon in another summer's brother and all these other things that come out of the plane crash um but the story was really really well done a lot of you know tie-ins to the broader marvel universe and i i really enjoyed it yeah I, I, it's a great comic um and i think you know like you guys are saying like it, it really it really um puts together all these pieces a lot like like I had to do with with the Jean Grey story um like I didn't really know much about Cyclops's origin at all I knew he had you know another brother and then he had another another brother and then you know and um and I knew the Mr. Sinister stuff but I've forgotten a lot of what I know um I remember some of that from X Factor um but uh but yeah I mean um I thought that this what, what's so great about it to me is it's both a Marvel's comic in the sense that it's from the standpoint of of an everyday person um but it's also an X-Men Origins comic at the same time yeah and so it, it really serves both those roles and it does it just it does it pretty fantastically um I'm saying fantastic a lot today I must have <laughs> fantastic four in my mind somehow well they're uh, in this issue we'll talk oh about yeah that. that's why <laughs> Um, and I thought, I, you know, and I guess we'll get into it as, as we do, but I think that that, um, um, uh, that Jay made that connection and used that as, um, as kind of the, uh, narrative framework, the, the X-Men's origin and his own trauma, um, was, was really clever, really clever. I was jealous. I imagine Jay's going to find it wild once we post this online. Like, oh my God, Sean, I have Sean McKeever root. He'll be like, who? <laughs> oh, no, I don't think so. Uh, so to put this in context for the long-term listeners of the podcast, after Roy Thomas took over the book in the 60s, there was for a long time five-page backup features in many of the books exploring the early origins of the X-Men. And there was a, a five-part backup devoted to Cyclops uh, written by Roy Thomas. And I think 
think Arnold Drake was involved. I'd have to go back and look. Anyway, uh, what we learn there is Cyclops comes to New York City because his eye blasts have gone out of control. There's an eye doctor here who prescribed ruby quartz to block the <laughs> the, uh, the blast. And uh, in a bizarre scene in, I think it's Uncanny Origins, we get a, uh, a flashback to Cyclops' origins as well. And we learn that that eye doctor's name is F period Teary, which is, of course, Frank Teary, which is wonderful. Uh, anyway, random. Uh, Cyclops uh, is out in the streets. There's an air conditioner falling, and he uses his powers to blast the air conditioner away. And then he runs down the road and ends up getting recruited by the Jack of Diamonds, uh, who is a terrible villain that was recently brought back by Roy Thomas and his X-Men Legends Volume 2, Number 1 and 2 spin. Uh, we'll talk about that another time. Uh, so uh, 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 Jay really smartly kind of finishes today's book around that time when Cyclops blasts the air conditioner. So he's working really hard to put this into Marvel historical context as well, even though we don't get the Jack of Diamonds uh, part. So this is kind of before and after Cyclops joins the X-Men. Uh, so as we're jumping in, uh, Scott Free, who, if you guys don't know, is a wonderful and very handsome cosplayer who has done some Cyclops looks over time. Uh, I'm also a big uh, fan of Cyclops as well, Scott. Will you take the beginning of the book, tell us a little bit about what happens, and we'll talk about it. Um, yeah, I, I do have to say the only disappointing thing was no Jack of Diamonds, because Roy Thomas keeps trying to make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh yeah so it it opens um sort of retelling of you know the touchstone of cyclops's origin which is the plane crash uh opens up with the cockpit um scott and alex behind um i'm just gonna say corsair christopher who's not corsair yet and um catherine summers and scott says something goes horribly wrong um and then the plane crashes and he can never remember exactly what happens next and then we get sort of a great spread with the parachute landing in the forest alex yelling scott in the search party and then sort of a kind of 50s 60s doctor hovering ominously um with red sort of reflection in his eyes and it's like oh yeah maybe it's mr sinister um or and then um scott snaps back awake and is yelling uh alex and um sort of find out that this is a common occurrence at the uh milgram institution for boys or i think they changed it to foundlings here in, in nebraska and um, state home for foundlings state home for foundlings um and they one of the kids describes it as just summers being summers like this is a common thing and um you know who's alex and scott insists that it's his brother and the nurse is like or the doctor is like well we've been over this you don't have a brother um and it just sort of goes through scott's mundane life at the uh the state home for for foundlings um you know it's a place that would take a kid with quote issues and um he describes his whole life as feeling like someone wearing a too small coat someone else's too small coat which i think is a great line because it's like it's uncomfortable it's restricting uh it doesn't feel like it's yours and um we then sort of see scott on the playground at the school um 
where he describes himself as a uh, a loser with brain damage stuck in nowhere nebraska um also a great line and there's kids in this sort of vague time period uh building a spaceship and scott tells them oh yeah they're called astronauts um and the kids basically tell him to like screw off like who asked you weirdo um and uh describe him as acting like a space alien and um if you ever listen to i found this really interesting if you ever listen to like jay and miles uh jay's very open about um autism and other things in spectrum and identifying with scott and sort of having difficulty with connecting with people because it's harder to read people it's harder um for all that and see some of that in here where scott's just trying to interact with these kids and one of them's just like well you're like a space alien and sort of you know he goes off because he's having trouble making this connection um and uh then you know the sort of stanley kirby-esque bullies who show up and um are harassing the kids and scott goes to intervene and um blacks out and he sort of describes these headaches as uh something he's had as long as he can remember and it's like being hit by by lightning in the brain and you know you sort of see scott start to he's going to take a stand against these guys as you expect cyclops later to do and he just blacks out um so it's like you know sort of the precipice of heroism but yeah brain damage a bit of character i especially love about that bit is that these kids were were shitty to him you know yeah and yet he was you know uh, um he just turns right around he's like no i'm gonna stand up for these kids who are shitty to me because <laughs> they're just kids yeah um and it cuts to him uh waking up in the infirmary uh with the headache having gone away just for now uh i'll speak on this for a moment the we're 2015 they released the dsm-5 which changed the way mental health diagnostics were done uh on the autism uh category they changed autism to being diagnosable as what they call autism spectrum disorder and there are a number of kind of cues about diagnosing autism. I won't go into this super long, but uh, one of the things that a, a common term that's used in the modern vernacular is neurodivergent. Uh, and some of the common traits of people who have pretty high functioning social, they, like they have some neurodivergence or autism, but they pretty well fit in or blend in with society. Uh, we, we see people who have difficulty reading social cues and who have like very obsessive routines and thoughts. And that's kind of the way that Scott is portrayed in this issue. And Jay has talked about this pretty openly as when you go back and read the 60s X-Men, Scott seems a little bit off. He's never quite able to like open up to Gene affectionately until he has like a lot of assurance. He's obsessed with being a good leader, obsessed with, uh, uh, even in the modern comics, he's leading the X-Men and he's got like a, a book of like a thousand scenarios that we may face and here's my plan to handle each one. Uh, so we get to see some of that portrayal here as a character who's not really reading the social cues very well and has a very kind of one track mind with the things that he is uh, focused on. Uh, it's a really beautiful portrayal of this character. It's, it's, it's well done. Uh, any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, I really got into the the character because you, I felt like I could identify more with Cyclops because I, I kind of just think of him as the dick from the X2 <laughs> movie, you know? And, uh, you know, this one gave him a lot more uh, character depth. And um, I like the fact that he's searching for something. He doesn't know who he is, that he has these uh, identity issues. So um, I thought it was just really well done and really well paced. Yeah. Which is something I really try to do in my comics. So I really appreciate that in other comics. You know, I thought, yeah, the not just the pace, because the pace kind of, it feels like it's taking its time with everything, but it it's actually just being super economical uh, with the space that it has. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a hard thing to do. And I think, you know, I think that um, between words and pictures, they, they do a pretty good job of it. Um, you know, and in terms of, of what you're saying about, Cyclops uh, and being neurodivergent, like my first experience with Cyclops, I'm like, oh, he's a stiff, he's a he's a tight ass, he's um, you know, he's a he's a narc, you know, like like you know all those kind of things. Like he's he's that guy that you knew in school that like you know it's like oh god, you know, you know, get a life, you know. Um, but but this provided. Um, some amazing context, you know, about him, um, you know, about his self-esteem and about his, you know, his, his awareness that something isn't right and his feeling like an alien and his feeling like he's not comfortable in his own skin. Yeah. Um, you know, his way of really, processing the world. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Really. Um, it really just brought so much to the character and maybe that's always been there. And I, you know, and, um, but, but I think, um, this is the first time I've really been able to read this and, or read something with Cyclops and really get a, a, a sense of it. One, you know, one question I have, because you guys are, are knowledgeable about the, um, Cyclops's history. Um, I was kind of wondering about like, um, like why they were saying he doesn't have a family. Like what, like, why would they, you know, do they not know it any better basically? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he has a childhood, but because of the trauma, they've kind of blacked it out. He doesn't really remember things. He's existing in this kind of state where he doesn't access the memories. He still has a grandma and grandpa that live in Alaska, uh, but there's no connection to them. And his parents are alive in space, but he doesn't know that either. It's later in Claremont's run after he meets Corsair. There's almost this moment of like, oh, you're my dad. You know, Corsair is his dad. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I even forgot about that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I was I was talking about this issue with my friends who are who are you know big Marvel fans, and you know, and yeah, it just becomes very confusing when you know the whole history. But I, I felt like I was missing something because I didn't know the history. But it sounds like really, I'm not so much. It's just that there was a trauma, and he's now essentially an orphan, right? Uh, you know, and 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 so why would anybody think that that what he's saying is is real, right? Yeah, and for some people in trauma, you can literally block out memories. For others, if you find yourself in a situation, I mean, I'll make something up. If your parents die and you're shipped to live across the country with your grandma, you kind of go into just a state of like existing in a routine for a while. And uh, you don't really process information sometimes. There's a there's a condition called depersonalization or disassociation that can take place in trauma often where you kind of just this happened to somebody else, or I'm blocking these things out, or I'm only focusing on these things. So there seems to be an element of that in the way that he's processing that in this space. 
Uh, it's really quite tragic. And the slow pace of this story really allows you to like dig into his head and his heart uh, and kind of see what he's going through. It's a very sympathetic take. Yeah, um, sure. Marcus, do you want to take us through the next section of the book? Yeah, sure. So um, Scott gets up and um, all the, the kids are gathered around the television because something big's going on. And so there's this double page spread, which is the first part of of, of my summary. And I, I love this spread. I just want to say this before I uh, actually talk about what happens in it. I like it because it's so crazy. It's so fun. And we just got all of this um, drama with the character. So I like that they, they kind of break that up with this, this big, colorful action spread. So it's the Fantastic Four battling Submariner in Manhattan as a group of fighter jets strafe the shit out of some kind of gigantic kaiju lamprey in the background. And Namor is apparently in some kind of conch concert action figure outfit sporting <laughs> brown boxers. He's got an S-belt. He's brandishing a spirally red shell accessory. And meanwhile, the FF is trying to stop him from living his musical dream. Okay, can let me pause you for a moment. There's a specific X-Men, or excuse me, Fantastic Four issue by Stanley and Jack Kirby, where Namor buys out a Hollywood film studio, brings the Fantastic Four there, and then makes a movie of him fighting them because he wants it publicly documented that he kicked their asses. He's holding an artifact called the Horn of Proteus that when you blow it, it summons giant sea monsters. So nice. that's uh, that's what's happening at this issue. It's literally the, this clip of like Namor versus the Fantastic Four, which got released in theaters and everything. It's like Marvel canon. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it even better. Um, so yeah, so Reed has him wrapped up. Johnny is toasting his feet. It looks like Sue is just turning invisible, but I think she's probably force fielding her legs so she can walk through fire and get closer to Namor. And then Ben is kind of punching the air, prepping for, uh, prepping for clobbering time. And then across the bottom of these two panels, or these two pages, we see eight panels that alternate between snapshots of FF action and Scott being in complete awe of their superheroics. So we see Reed trying to touch something off panel. Ben, I think it's Ben, is running past the big-ass lamprey mouth with a bomb strapped to him. And Sue is grabbing Namor's horn. Pun intended. <laughs> In the other four panels, uh, Scott gets increasingly wide-eyed, and then we see one eye grow red, which they kind of do this throughout the issue, you know, they're hinting that he's got those abilities. I really like that part of it. So then... Uh yeah, uh, the, the the one thing with Ben is uh, it's it's Fantastic Four number nine, and Reed's solution to the Beast is to strap a bomb on Ben's back and mm -hmm. to have Ben take it into the, it was, you know, little little dickish, little dickish Reed. <laughs> yeah, was <laughs> he that's great? That, that I didn't that back then. I never read it. So to read this and then see it, because they're just giving you snapshots of what happened in that battle. You you don't really know what's happening. And I kind of dug it because it just made it seem more ridiculous. And again, kind of broke up um, the beginning of the book, which is very heavy. Of course, it gets back into it a little bit now. But um, I thought that was fun where you see the super heroics and it kind of jars you out of that, just like it does Scott in the book. You know, it's like he sees this and it's like, oh, his mind just goes, goes crazy. So um, on the next page, we learn that this is the first time anyone has seen the FF in action. It has a profound effect on the world and on Scott. 
Um, the term superhero is now a thing, and we see some shots of the FF being cool as fuck, as well as some panels of the state home for foundling kids reacting uh, to the superhero exploits in different ways. And then after that, the next two pages show Scott becoming obsessed with superheroes. We see posters, magazines, newspapers on his desk, and they indicate a lot more superheroes have suddenly started arriving. And Scott feels a need to dig deeper. He feels a connection to them. He wants to understand why superheroes have suddenly stepped into the light and how they fit into the world. And he needs to make sense of what's happening because it might help him make sense of himself. So he's then looking, we see he's looking into the evaders. Uh, he's yep. hearing about Ant-Man and Thor and Iron Man and Hulk and Spider-Man. Yeah. Like uh, this, the, the idea that the world just kind of went crazy. Mm-hmm. And then we that's see also, him. That's also where he makes that connection of, you know, it's four people in a plane who got into an accident. But yeah. like the difference being, yep. yeah, that they became superheroes. Well, his, yeah, his resulted in tragedy and brain damage mm-hmm. and they became yeah. superheroes. Yeah. So then we see Scott in the library continuing his his research, and the librarian there tells him that Reed Richards is going to do a free talk in town at the Center for Agricultural Futurism. Scott gets excited because he's been imagining a father with Reed's face when he sleeps. So at last, he has a chance to talk to his dream daddy. <laughs> That's how it ends. My section. We also see a reference to at this lecture, he's going to be lecturing with Iron Man and a character named Dr. Peter Corbeau, who is an X-Men adjacent character. He's the leader of Star Corps. Uh, X-Men fans will know this name. He's appeared in the comics a few dozen times, at least. Uh, I, uh, I, I will do a Patreon on him someday, I'm sure. We, <laughs> I like this. Great Easter egg for, the, for you nerds. <laughs> oh we nerds i i would include you in our numbers <laughs> uh sean do you want to take uh take the next part of the book let us know what happens no i don't feel like it um no. <laughs> yeah so um so he tries to come up with a with a plan uh scott does to go to this um to this uh Center for Agricultural Futurism talk uh, because he just has to, has to, has to meet Reed Richards, even if it means sneaking out of the orphanage. Um, so he comes up with a with a plan. Um, and, you know, I'm just looking at this again for the first time in a week. <laughs> but um, um, so the, the one thing that happens here that 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 was kind of a um, a little shortcutty for me. So he's so he's at a um, he's at the doctor's because of his his headaches, his migraines that cause him to you know pass out and stuff, and uh, and when he comes out, he gets um, his ruby quartz glasses, and but he doesn't have headaches anymore because of them. You know, um, I was I was just a little confused by that. It, you know, at first, like what. You know what's going on here. Well, his headaches seem to come to come and go with stress, and this is a common thing for mutants when their powers are learning to activate. It's usually stress that activates them for the first time. And ruby quartz is the one substance that can block his optic rays from harming others. So it, there seems to be an idea that they are kind of blocking out. Uh, Scott gets his power from sunlight as well; it charges up his powers. So there seems to be some association with once he's got the glasses on, it's easier for him to control that stress until the stress activates again. Right. 
Right. I, I think the the one big takeaway for me is that the first thing he thinks of when he's, you know, he's got this kind of, you know, way to ease his suffering is that he looks like a freak, you know, um, and that's that's his mindset. You know, um, the first thing the first thing to come to mind is something negative. Um, so he, he gets to the to the center um, where they're having the talk. Um, and it's a you know it's this huge crowd of people there, um, and and first is Doctor uh, Corbeau speaking, and and I you know I didn't really, um, I didn't really know much about him, so I you know I I, I really just didn't take much from it except that it was like Hitler, you know, <laughs> um, uh, you know I, I um yeah I would I would say that like it you know the the text itself of what he's talking about i didn't see like an immediate kind of feel for what it you know what it had contextually um to bring to the table to but but it you know it, it was an interesting uh a bit of dialogue anyway and then of course we get uh tony stark which is you know total throwaway a little cameo um uh, which is which is perfect for him you know he's just yeah. his, his billionaire <laughs> playboy um guy you know uh, making a inappropriate uh, comment about going, you know, about the gentleman's club, um, <laughs> which is very much him, you know. Um, and then finally, Reed Richards takes to the stage and, you know, he starts going um, very analytically about about uh, quantum physics and everybody's starting to fall asleep except for Scott Summers, who's, you know, completely wrapped um just you know so happy that he's sitting there listening to to read and what he's telling him and what he you know what he's saying it's almost like he's you know like he's the only one in the audience at that point um but before reed can continue his um lengthy um lecture um we are introduced to a giant mantis uh breaking into the uh dome and the mantis is piloted by a woman with the name of Linda Mantiday. The that common last name of Mantiday. <laughs> this, this is a bit so I saw this character and and somebody um uh somebody gives her the name Dr. Mantis, um in, somebody in the crowd. And I looked her up because I'm like, oh, I don't remember her. And she was created for this comic. Yep, this is her first and only appearance. Now, the 60s tie-in is the X-Men fight a guy called the Locust in the early books uh, who grows bugs to giant size and fights them. So I want I want a Locust and Dr. Mantis like team up now. <laughs> <laughs> so what I love about this is that is is you know um is Dr. Mantis is there um because she's you know anti-fumigation and and pesticides and and so it's it's a character that's very relevant to this story um i think ideally i would have loved if this were a character from the marvel universe established already just because this is a marvel's book you know and and so you kind of want that and and you know but but it the thing is that it probably wasn't you know there probably wasn't an ideal character to use for that and what's great about this is with the name and her look she looks like um she looks like a 
cross between Dr. Octopus and, and the um, the outfitter from The Incredibles. I forget her name. Edna, was it? Yeah, Edna Moe. Oh, yeah. 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 Wow. yeah. And, I mean, she's very much, this is a character they would have created. Stan and Jack would have done this, you know? So it's very much in with um, with the entire Marvel's, um, you know, aesthetic and the 60s aesthetic. Um, so the so she she breaks the ceiling, um, you know, and and immediately reads going into action. Um, apparently, was wearing his unstable molecules under his suit because he's just, you know, he's in his uh, he's in his blue and black now. And uh, you know, he's telling everybody to evacuate. Tony Stark amusingly is like, "I'm gonna call my bodyguard," <laughs> <laughs> and and he's running off. Peter Parker style looking, you know, looking like he's being a coward. Um, and, and comes back so, in his 60s gold armor, which is amazing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and 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 so we, we're seeing this now from Scott's perspective, and he's still an everyman. He, you know, he doesn't know he has any kind of spe anything special about him. Um, and so this is very much in the Marvel's tradition. And he's with a bunch of people who get trapped under rubble um and he you know and and he's understandably terrified they fall through the floor they get trapped and we we spend a you know there's a two-page spread here it's, it's you know and I'll, i gotta say like tom riley's layouts in this entire thing are are fantastic i i just i really like it they're clean um simple and effective um and and I also like the, um, you know, you had mentioned earlier the color, um, you know, the color suddenly pops whenever the superheroes are around. And, and it's the same here. Like they're under the, they're down in the dark and it's all very drab. And then you see the the superhero stuff going on and it's, and it's more colorful and, and exciting. Um, and so here Scott is with a bunch of strangers under this rubble. And, you know, the, people are trying to, to break their way out. While Iron Man and Mister Fantastic are are fighting themselves a giant uh, praying mantis, um, and you know you see you see you know a woman holding on to her daughter, um, and just you know and you see uh, the the you know the first responders, and you just really get the sense of the human toll. You know the the sense that we don't get when we're reading the comics um, from that era. You also of, get a little bit. You get a little bit of insight into the way Cyclops perceives these types of things. And this is consistent in the comics. The leader not only has to focus on battle strategy, but how to avoid property damage, how to protect civilians. What's the most effective strategy to take them down? And you can see his character start to kind of obsess in those spaces as he's viewing what's happening around. I think Jay does a beautiful, Jay and Tom do a beautiful job of assessing because it's not just the superheroes punching. He's showing the damage and the people impacted. And Cyclops yeah. watch, or Scott's watching all of this. It's great. Well, you know, and, and another, you know, another great um, moment where we get to see what Scott's made of, um, you know, he's not just sitting there cowering, you know, um, first he's trying to get a good look at what's going on. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's just trying to come up with an idea of, of how to get out. And he sees a, a, a little piece of glass and he realizes he can he can reflect the light from outside with the glass. To let the firemen know that somebody that people are trapped down in there and and you know it's it's something a superhero would do 
if they didn't have any powers, yeah. you know? Um, well, it's cool too. Cause in the beginning you see him just watching what's happening and, and the pages I described, and now he's actually in the action and participating in it, yeah. not yet as a superhero, but I like the progression right. of how he's and he, involved. And he, you know, he even says so himself, he's terrified, you know, yeah. this is, but this yeah. is like, it's, it's, you know, there is that call to action and he just, and he just innately goes yeah, for he, it. He has to respond to it. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and so then, so he gets out. We, of course, don't see the aftermath of the entire, you know, battle because that's how marbles work. But um, <laughs> we see the, a, a leg of the praying mantis sticking out of the rubble. So maybe this is, you know, there's a reason this is the only ever appearance of Dr. Mantis. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and Scott's, you know, sitting on some of the rubble and he's, and he's got a, you know, they've, they've given him a, a blanket um and the cops are helping people out and and assessing the situation um and as, as a side note on dr mantis whose real name is linda mantiday the locust the 60s x-men villain's real name is augustus hopper so uh short for that is gus hopper nice oh, yeah anyway wow. <laughs> nice these two need to be together that's all i think i think there needs to be a team or a, or a divorce. <laughs> you know, and, and the so, bug bastards of evil. <laughs> uh, so, so Scott's um, realizing, like, you know, I I never knew what I would say to Reed Richards if I ever met him, but now I'd ask him, like, what does it feel like making those choices, diving into fights, even when they don't know if they can win? And he, it's like, dude, you just saved a bunch of people. Like, you know what it feels like, you know, going into going into difficult odds. But he just doesn't see himself uh, that way. But um, but then he he comes to realize that 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 you know it's it's not about power; it's about knowing what to do. And and he you know he figured out what to do in that situation, but. You know, it's better to be prepared to know what to do. And so, you know, this is a, an epiphany for him. Um, you know, he knows he's not going to save the world. He's not special or a genius, but maybe he can help people and maybe he can be ready for when the worst happens. And, and this is kind of where he finds where he, he finds a role that he could possibly fit into. And he says, it feels like coming out of the dark which is which is great um in many ways you know it, it mirrors that he came out of the rubble um it's you know it's it's obviously um a metaphor um as well um and not just literal and it's a metaphor in more than one way and it's you know the way that the x-men has often been a metaphor for you know for queerness and for outsiders it's the best part of Professor X, who's giving this kid a home and a purpose. My single favorite moment in this comic book is when Scott goes back to the library after this and pulls a book off the shelf called How to Fix Almost Everything. <laughs> yeah. He checks out books on auto repair, celestial navigation, emergency medical guides. He, this is the Cyclops we know and love. He's he's super hyper-focused on knowing everything and being the best. It's, it's a wonderful portrayal of his character. Well done, Jay Edidin. Absolutely. 
I think, is that the end of my section, I believe? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, the librarian then offers him a copy of The Art of War. Uh, she's, she says, you might want to start thinking like a tactician. And he obsesses over it. He reads it three times, renews it. He, uh, he makes notes about it, memorizes sections. So the next time that the bullies start to kind of act out against him, he fights back. The art of war doesn't work. And he says so much for Sun Tzu, but he's learning that maybe these are not always the most effective strategies. They knock him to the ground, his glasses fall off and his powers activate. They blow right through a wall and he's super scared. He runs for it. This is kind of the point where Jack of Diamonds is gonna come into it. He starts to notice people are staring him at like a freak. He also realizes, and it's not directly stated, but the Fantastic Four are seen as heroes. He's seen as a freak. And that's always been the standout. The Fantastic Four are a family who are celebrated and wealthy. The X-Men are the outcasts who are continually attacked for who they are. And that uh, that comparison, he realizes as much as he worships Reed Richards, there's something that's always going to be fundamentally different uh, about him. Uh, we then flash to the city. And this is the uh, space I uh, or I talked about earlier, where he's walking and the air conditioner is going to fall. And he starts to assess, if I use my powers here, people are going to see that. They're going to call me a freak again. But he decides to do it. He flashes his powers and the uh, air conditioner is blasted aside. And then we cut forward to the future. So all that stuff about Jack of Diamonds and Professor X recruiting him and all these years with the X-Men, which include the time travel adventure into the present and going back and his mind being wiped. This includes all the stuff with Jean Grey and Madeline Pryor and having a baby and sending it into the future. We then flash to, we then flash to 90s Cyclops. If only, if only they didn't include all that in a, in a montage. <laughs> we, then, we then flash to 90s Cyclops in his iconic kind of Jim Lee costume era where he He's leading the X-Men blue team. He's flanked by Gambit and Psyl uh, Psylocke. He's assessing a situation, coordinating multiple people. He's talking to Cable and X-Force. He's talking to Peter Corbeau, who's the guy he saw lectured. He's talking to his brother, Alex, who is uh, uh, the leader of X-Factor at the time as Havoc. He's talking to Reed Richards. And it's his job now to come in and kind of help save the Fantastic Four from a threat. And uh, we see him as a consummate leader. Uh, the issue ends with him, uh, the, these kind of word bubbles of him saying, I used to think that if I could do what you do, thinking about Reed Richards, it would unlock the world. I'd learn to make sense of things. I would make sense. Honestly, what I've learned is how wrong I was and that it's worth it anyway. Uh, I love this issue. I love this character. I am not a Professor X or a Beast fan. I'm a huge Cyclops fan. <laughs> I love him almost as much as I love Jean Grey. Uh, he he falls above, if I'm ranking the original X-Men, he falls a little above Angel and Iceman. Uh, I love this character uh, a lot. As we're kind of wrapping up our thoughts here, uh, what, what do you take about this character from this issue that you maybe didn't think of before? Maybe he's not a dick. Maybe he's, <laughs> maybe he's a good character. Yeah, no, I don't know. It just um, that he has so many different layers. There's a lot more to him. Um, then it's like, if you would meet him, you would have one assessment, but you don't really know everything that went into making him. And this gives you the snapshot of, of, of how he came to be who he is. And I like that. It makes me uh, identify with him a lot, a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Absolutely. Same. Just did um, we're, we're so used to seeing the hyper competent Cyclops, um, that, you know, people and characters don't just come out fully developed. It takes time to become that hyper-competent 
figure. And uh, I, I think it's, it, this adds very nicely to his uh, to his backstory. The uh, the the full fledged uh, ability to take a modern story and so carefully insert it into the '60s continuity and have it be seamless is not easy to do, and it's so well done here. The, from the from the right costumes being portrayed to the Fantastic Four Submariner movie to that moment with the air conditioner at the end and that being the point. The through line of Peter Corbeau and Reed Richards from Cyclops early days to now him acting as a hero. Uh, the parallel between the Fantastic Four and their ship being celebrated, but the Summers family being lost. Uh, the trauma, the uh, the loneliness, and most of all, the neurodivergence of this character in this issue. I love it. Five stars out of five. It's a beautiful book. Uh, in our next episode, we're going to be going back to X-Men Origins Cyclops number one, which was released around the same time as Sean McKeever's uh, Jean Grey book. Uh, it's a wonderful book. And our featured guest in that episode is going to be the incredible, iconic, uh, legendary artist, Bob Hall, uh, who I got to meet when I was here at FanX. And uh, he, he told me in, in his last email, like, I'm really excited about the interview, but I don't know why I'm still talking about these characters. <laughs> I really, love them. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to Bob on the show. It's going to be a great time. Uh, the uh, the uh, next Patreon episode around this time is going to be about the Pride family, which is uh, going to be done with my friend Carrie Harris, uh, the novelist who has worked on so many uh, Marvel characters, and uh, it's going to be a little bit heavy. Uh, unlike my episode with Marcus Lan about Obnoxio the Clown, which was just sheer ridiculousness. <laughs> that was great. Uh, guys really dig deep. <laughs> oh, well, I wanted to do it. The real star was Ice Cream, who I is my see. favorite. We talk, uh, I just had Bob Quinn on the show, and we talk about Ice Cream and his character Soft, soft Serve, and we compare them to each other. So, Mark Zell, you'll have to listen. We're going to yeah. put that out in a, in a few days. Uh, you can find Gray Malkin Lane, uh, Gray Malkin PP Like Podcast on Twitter, and Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. Feel free to uh, message anytime. We've got some amazing new stuff coming up in the new year, as well as some big announcements. Uh, recognizing this episode is going to come out on December 18th. Uh, let us know where we can find each of you online and plug anything that you would like to plug that might be coming out. Uh, Sean, do you want to go first? And I would love for you to talk at least briefly about your uh, your Wolverine love story uh, on the Marvel Unlimited app. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's my first Marvel work in 11 years. It's called X Loves of Wolverine. They had, you know, X Lives of Wolverine and X Deaths of Wolverine. So they said, why not have X Loves of Wolverine? And it's a six-part romance story um, that's... Uh, it starts out set back in the in the Claremont years where he was uh, dating Mariko, and uh, and I had a, a ton of fun making it. And all six chapters are out now on the app. Um, you know, it, it's um, it's a paid subscription, but you know there is a free trial, and it doesn't take that long to read my chapters. I'm not saying just read it for free and leave, but you know you can do that. Um, and uh, you can find me at seanmckeever.com. Um, you can find my all my social media and contact information there. Um, and coming up for me are some secrets, which include a couple comic book projects and a big, big video game that's coming out in the future. Fantastic. Uh, Marco Yashida is Wolverine's one and only love for me. He's with Jean Grey now and Cyclops. Yeah. Yeah, I've been I've been told about that. I, I really want to I really want to check that out and see what's going on there. 
It's I heard about of, their living arrangements with the, yeah, with the doors. Yeah. It's kind of more like behind, it, it's referenced without being directly referenced. Right, I love right. them as a throuple. <laughs> uh, right. let's, go to, let's go to Scott Free next. Yeah. Um, so uh, podcast that I co-host, Power of X-Men, um, our book club, the Mutant Menace book club is coming back uh, coincidentally on December 18th. Uh, we are reading Anne the Senti's uh, long shot from the uh the 80s uh it's delightful uh long shot mojo spiral um all that and you can find me on most social media platforms as mr scott free and i apologize in advance uh and you also get mojo and major domo who are the gayest couple in x-men history <laughs> yeah for real <laughs> yeah it, it's yeah yeah <laughs> I, I can't i can't say anything after that yes <laughs> and then over to markasan uh yeah you can check out my website at markasan.com it's m-a-r-k-i-s-a-n um darth san on twitter and darth markasan on instagram um by the horns uh, my comic book series the dark earth arc is coming out now issue six was just released and it's going to run 12 issues uh, if you want to stay in the know about By the Horns, you can follow us on social media at, at By the Horns Comic on all platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can listen to the Metalheads podcast on your favorite podcast app or just go to metalheadspodcast.com uh, to play the episodes. We're going to be doing our uh, top 25 metal albums of 2022. Uh, this Saturday, we're going to do the recording. So pretty excited. I'm like pulling my hair out, making my list. So much metal. Uh, Marcus and Scott, I am a huge fan of both of yours. It's great to see you both again. Thank you for coming on the show. And Mr. Sean McKeever, can I just tell you what a gem you are? You are full of light and life, and I'm a huge fan of yours. Thank you for the gift of your time and talents today. It's so oh, great thank to you. I, you. I had a pleasure talking to you guys. This was yeah, great. Me too. Thanks for having me. Thank great you. to meet you. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. We will see you back here next time on uh, Grand Mountain Lake. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help... Grandma Can Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grandma Can Lane.